Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Barry Katz is an Emmy and Grammy-nominated TV, film, and record producer, talent manager, and podcast host. As owner and founder of the Boston Comedy Club, he gave early stage time to future stars like Dave Attell, Sarah Silverman, Dana Gold, and Timothy Oliphant. He helped launch the careers of comedians like Dave Chappelle, Bill Burr, Wanda Sykes, and Jim Gaffigan. Barry produced such shows and specials as HBO's Torgasm and Seven Seasons of Last Comic Standing. He was a trailblazer in using social media to help comedians accelerate their career. Barry is the host of the critically acclaimed podcast Industry Standard, where he talks to entertainers about the risky decisions they made that took them to the next level in their careers. In addition to the podcast, Barry is offering comedians a leg up in the business with his Blueprint for Success series that gives wisdom from Barry, play-by-play breakdowns of comedy performances, Zoom sessions, and a master course on how to kickstart your comedy career. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the practical knowledge you get from Blueprint for Success. Here is the legendary Barry Katz. Ta-da! And it's Barry. How you doing, Barry? I can't believe I'm more legendary than HelloFresh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're just a couple notches above. And uh, I'm really stoked to have you on the show. You are uh, somebody that I really thought that I'd like to have on the show because I've listened to quite a few episodes of Industry Standard. And I was actually kind of shy about asking you to be on the show. And I finally decided, you know what? What's the worst I'm going to get? I'm going to get no, like I got from Paula Poundstone, and I'll just go on with my life. And lo and behold, you said yes. So I really appreciate that. Well, no problem. I'm just wondering, you know, who's BTB 1 through 15 on HelloFresh? <laughs> I want to know what 16 has. Forget it. Let's, let's forget about that. And Paula Poundstone, listen, you know, keep trying. Listen, I've, I, 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 she's, she said yes to me in person, but I, it still hasn't happened yet. And she was one of the first headliners. She was the first headliner I ever booked in my entire life and was always so kind and, uh, and wonderful and, and yeah. generous. To me. And so uh, um, I, uh, I, I owe her a debt of gratitude because she got me sort of indirectly into the, you know, more high established artist realm. Uh-huh. And and a wonderful person. You know, if you have not seen her live, you do not know who Paula Poundstone is as a performer. She is, I mean, she's a force of nature when she's on stage. And I got to see her a few years ago, and it was just, it was magical the way that she could remember all the crowd work she did from the beginning of the show and turn it around to callbacks at the end of the show. It was just, it was masterful. Yeah, one of the things about Paula that's fascinating, and I, I think that um, I think it's important for your audience to hear this perspective because I, you know, everything has happened, everything works, but Paula was this and still is this unique artist who can do like hours of material, just planting her feet and slinging the jokes and the stories with her cadence and intuition and her voice, which you could, if you're playing name that <laughs> voice, you could name it in one second. But then she has the capability of doing crowd work as well, and not just the kind of crowd work that you see MCs do at comedy clubs like Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut right. and uh, wherever it is. Uh, you know, she's doing original material that's that's not even in a Rolodex, it seems, in her brain. It's just spontaneous. 
And she's one of the few artists who gets respect from doing crowd work. If only, if the only one, you mm-hmm. know, a lot right. of times, uh, somebody came up to me uh, the other day who shall remain nameless, a very, uh, you know, somebody who's really doing well. And they said, Barry, I found it on my social media. I do crowd work and I put that up and that's the stuff that gets the most views. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, I said, well, that's great. But when's the last time you heard somebody say, Hey, I went to see Chappelle in concert at the Hollywood bowl it was unbelievable. Well, what, what moved you the most? Yeah. It was this moment where he, he saw a guy in the front row and he said, where are you from? <laughs> and the guy said, I'm from here. And he said, Oh, okay. What do you do for a living? I'm an accountant. Oh, fantastic. And, and, and they tell you the, the, the exchange that he had with an audience member. Uh-huh. So they, they tell you the exchanges that he has in his mind that he shares with you that blow you away. Not, not what the crowd work is. Right. So I'm not, I'm a, I don't get me wrong. No one laughs harder at crowd work than me, but if you think the crowd work is going to get you to any point in this business quicker than your mind and your pen, uh, I think you're sadly mistaken. Mm, that's, that's a good note. And you are a hundred percent correct. Nobody does it like Paula and nobody has as quick of a wit based on what she hears back from the crowd as her. I mean, it's just, it's amazing that you can, the synapses in your brain can work that quickly to just flow with it like that. It's it's like I said, masterful. Absolutely. I'm so honored to be on this podcast with planes flying over, uh, this town here it's incredible <laughs> there's a lot of planes here i live on uh i live at the uh, azuma beach and they're always flying these, uh-huh. these planes with these advertisements and i'm so sorry there yeah there it is hey i tell you what we live close to um an arsenal redstone arsenal so sometimes they're uh testing ordinances over there so we may get some of that thrown in for fun <laughs> No problem. But it's really great to be here. I'm glad you asked me. I love, you know, I love talking about the business. And if I can do it at a lunchtime or late at night or whatever it is, I, I, I always want to do it because uh-huh. I, I think that, you know, I, I realized throughout my life that's the thing that's always made me feel the best is is sharing my thoughts and, and my opinions on what I think about certain things. And, and look, you know, there's probably a zillion comics who might, you know, hear an opinion that I'd say, and they would say, you know, F Barry Katz. What is, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and somebody might. But all, you know, when you're in my side of the business, you only, you only get paid for one thing, mm-hmm. and, and that's your opinion. Right. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough. I was thinking the other day, I was literally, literally it was like, three o'clock in the morning, I'm in the feeble position on the couch and I'm thinking to myself, like, it's unbelievable all the things that I've been fortunate enough and so humbled to be involved with. I mean, I, there isn't any kind of thing in this crazy messed up business that I haven't been a part of, you know, if it's like a, you know, a performance at Madison Square Garden, you know, I've, I've been there. If it's mm-hmm. uh, an HBO or Netflix or whatever special, I've done a million of them. If mm-hmm. it's a film that somebody, you know, writes and gets made, you know, I, I've been there. I've, I've, I've been able to uh, be in Vegas. I just am uh, doing some work with Circus Soleil and we're launching the uh, first Circus Soleil show since the pandemic at New York, New York. It's going to be called Mad Apple. It's one extraordinary night in New York. And and we just uh, worked together to cast Brad Williams, uh, a really phenomenal comedian. Mm-hmm. As the lead, Circus Soleil has never had a stand-up comedian on a show as a lead or anything. And so... I, I get to work on, you know, I, I get to work with an artist who's never ever booked an acting job before and working with them. And then in one, their first audition, they book a series or, 
I, I've just every incarnation you can think of, you know, being backstage at the old Letterman show or the tonight show or whatever with somebody doing their first time or, or being in Montreal and, and seeing somebody get a deal there after having nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think about it and it's, it, it just, it's really humbling because you don't, I don't know how your audience feels when you set out, but very few people set out with, and they have like the, you know, the, the lined index cards all over their house of what they're going to do in their career. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was, I was certainly one of those people who never had anything. I never, I, I know this is horrible to say because I don't, wouldn't tell anybody to be this way, but I never, ever thought about, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, or I'm going to sit in a room with a guy who presses a button on his computer and sells out two shows at Boston Garden with no, no ads, no nothing. Uh You know, I never, you never know where the world takes you. And fate is a very strange thing. You know, granted, obviously I, I wanted to be successful at what I did and I wanted to do a great job and I wanted to, uh, move the needle, but I, I, I really didn't set those kind of goals. All I thought to myself was if you just work harder and smarter than everybody else and you do things a little bit differently, you know, you take some risks, do things a little differently. You're a little bit of a maverick. Your um, chances are you're going to get noticed, and and things are going to happen. And mm-hmm. as that happens, you know, look, you know, there's nothing like there's nothing like working with somebody to on their audition for Saturday Night Live. And in Daryl Hammond's case, as he reminded me, because I didn't even remember, I actually wrote his for Saturday Night Live. I'm not a writer. I've never published anything in my life. I've never written a script. Uh-huh. But I worked with him. I saw the talent he had. And he shared with me that he could do an impression of Ted Koppel, which was not in his act. And I thought to myself, why don't we do a nightline with Ted Koppel and all your characters come in and out. And not only does he get Saturday Night Live, but when I go there for that premiere episode of that season, he's a new cast member, and the commercial comes off, and the cold open comes up, and it's Daryl Hammond as Ted Koppel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, those are things that you can't, you know, and, and, and just to share something else with the audience, I, I, I never thought to myself, well, I'm doing this and for the money and it's going to make this amount of money and I'm doing this and it's going to make this amount of money. Because in the beginning, as a manager, you, you can't think that way. You can't look. I remember I had four clients on Saturday Night Live. The average salary for a season on Saturday Night Live back then for a beginning cast member was about $100,000 a year. Mm. You're on the greatest show in the world, and it's about $100,000 a year. So do the math. You know, as a manager, 10% was like $40,000 for the year. Mm. My office in New York City was $40,000 a year rent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, what? So you're, you're involved, your talent and theirs are involved from Jay Moore to Jim Brewer to Daryl Hammond, Tracy Morgan. Um, Dane Cook hosted the show twice, and mm. I also represented, you know, Sherry O'Terry and Dean Edwards. But your talent and their talent goes into it, and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in their career to that point and you're making ten thousand dollars you know you you're or let's say let's say one of you listening you know has a manager and it's like you're like i want to do uh the tonight show with jimmy fallon and your manager and you you work on the set you're submitting to 
the bookers over and over again, back and forth. Finally, you get the call. Hey, you got it. You got the Tonight Show. You're doing it on April 15th. Well, if you're doing it for the money, then you're in deep shit because the comedian is probably making about $596.30. Yeah. And the manager, uh, if he even asks for the commission, which why would he? If he wants to go get HelloFresh, maybe it's like $59. So, so it's like you don't look at it for the money. You, you know, re respect that last cash. You're yeah. going to... You're going to do well if you do great work over and over again. Your legend will grow and the money will come. And even times when, for myself, when, you know, there's, it, it's, it's like anything else that every business, when you're, I'll say the politically correct way to say it, you can either work for the person or be the person. And so, the thing is, I never wanted to be the guy who worked for the person, uh -huh. worked for the corporation. You know, that really, I didn't want, I wanted to be my own boss. And so when you're your own boss, you start January 1st, just like a lot of the comedians listening and people who want to write or want to do something in the entertainment business, you're starting January 1st, and unless you're the best psychic in the world, you have no idea what you're going to make that year. Mm -hmm. No idea what's going to happen. But if you work for HelloFresh at the company plant, you know exactly what you're going to make. Yeah. You're planning out the whole year. Okay, I'm going to make this amount of money. Okay, rent is this. Okay, our food is this. We get HelloFresh for 20% discount because we work there. Uh, we, uh, let's see what else we got here. We got our entertainment, our car insurance, our health insurance. Okay. What's left. Okay. This is what's left. And, and you plan your life Yeah. when you're an entrepreneur or a young comedian or whatever you're starting or whatever writer, you have no idea what's going to happen. Fate is an amazingly strange thing. It can lead you to things that will blow you away. It's mm -hmm. just, it's, it, it's, you know, I don't want to rant too long, but I think this is important. Look, I was in Boston. I was like, I thought I was killing it. I had like 50 one-nighters all over New England. I had my own thing. I had three comedy clubs I was booking there. I was like, really, it came from nowhere to do that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was all cash businesses back then, you know, where you go to the club and people are just paying in cash and, and the comedy boom and, and, um, and I got married and my wife passed away after eight months, 23 years old. Wow. And I'm just like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, what am I going to do? Like, what's going to happen? Like, how am I going to go on? Like, I mean, I realized the tragedy happened and she's no longer here anymore. And that's horrifying, but mm -hmm. I'm also in a way it's horrifying because I'm left and I thought my life was going this way and it's not. And so, and it's like that negative positive thing where you run into comedians and they want to be nice to you. You'd run into them. Hey Barry, how you doing? Are you okay? Is everything okay? And everywhere you go, somebody says, are you okay? Is everything okay? Can I do anything for you? Mm -hmm. And it's like the positive negative. And when that happened, like a month later of just being in bed, like not wondering what I was going to do and not caring about anything, I got in my car and I drove to New York City, got off at the 79th Street Boat Basin exit and just went as far as I could. And there was a, a bar. I went to the bar. There was a pay phone with one of those old yellow, uh, yellow pages. Mm -hmm. I opened it up to real estate, uh, agents. Uh, I put a quarter in, I started calling and leave the number on the pay phone. One guy calls back the first apartment. I look at at 82nd street and central park West. It was $935 a month. First, last and security. 
I gave them the $2,700 in cash, and I'm in New York City. And I don't know why I'm there. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I don't give a shit. Uh-huh. And, and then I get, miraculously, I get a call from Eddie Brill, who used to be the booker for uh, Letterman and it's a comic. Former guest. I, I just interviewed him a couple months ago. He says, uh, I have a comedy club that I was running in Greenwich Village, and I'm going to L.A. Uh, why don't you go down there and talk to the guy? I said, okay, I go down there and talk to the guy. I'm writing on like a cocktail napkin, like what my idea is for the room, which is the Boston Comedy Club in New York City. The mm-hmm. absolute singular worst idea in history. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I go there. I pitch it to them. I say, you can have the bar and the food. Just give me the door and I'll make it work. Mm-hmm. And they said, Yes. And I just started renovating the place and putting it together. And I opened up in June of 1988. And my first comedian on stage was my first client ever, Louis C.K. Wow. And he was helping me run the wires and the lights, Uh 18 years old. 18 years old, he's come down to New York City and is doing that. Wow. So... And, and then there I got to meet all these young, great comics who couldn't work anywhere, weren't getting great spots at the clubs like Chappelle mm. and Jay Moore and Jeff Ross and Jim Brewer. And, and I would give them stage time because I believed in them. And then I started representing them. And then it just started happening. And, and again because of something faithful that happened. Mm -hmm. And and I'm here to tell your audience that I know it sounds strange and you can't quantify it anywhere in any court of law, but, you know, fate just has a way of taking you and the world has a plan. I'm not saying that you can just sit on your ass and eat donuts all day Mm -hmm. and the world's going to have a plan. But if you're willing to get out there and and push yourself and take risks, you're going to be in a great position. I was saying the other day on, um, I have these uh, zoom calls on this blueprint uh, for success thing I do. And I, I was saying how the lens is for artists sometimes, and it, it could be exactly the same but you can see how it changes for different scenarios. Like, for instance, if I were to say to anyone listening as a comic, listen, I want you to uh, submit to the um, Jimmy Kimmel show. Uh, They're taking one comedian this year, one comedian, and he's taking 10,000 submissions. Uh, Why don't you send yours in and... Most comedians are like, come on, man, 10,000. I mean, I'm one, I'm, come on. I'm never, even if it was a thousand, you know, most uh-huh. comedians would be like, ah, come on. Well, I'll, maybe I'll wait for when they, you know, they open it up a little bit more or whatever. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I might be number two or number five, but I'm not going to. But if I told that comedian, look, we're going on a great, beautiful cruise, all expenses paid with uh, 10,000 or let's just, let's just say a thousand people mm-hmm. and we're going out to this beautiful bay and all expenses paid. And we're all going to go swimming in this beautiful bay. But one of us is going to get killed by a shark. How many people listening are going to go on that cruise? Yeah. <laughs> no one. <Yeah. laughs> no one. Well, why aren't you going on the cruise? Because I could get killed by the shark. There's a one in a thousand shot. I could get killed by a shark. Uh-huh. Why are you submitting a Kimmel? Come on, I'll never get the show. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, I, I, in talking with you before we came on, you're pretty humble. But the the one thing that you have to give yourself is you have an eye for talent, and you have a very wide variety of different comedians that you've helped take places. What is it about 
the comedians that you see something in? What is different from them versus another comedian that maybe cracks you up, um, does, like we talked before, great crowd work and stuff like that? What is that difference, that key difference that makes them special? First of all, I want to apologize, uh, Scott, that I never saw it happening for you. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, I, I missed the boat on you. I just. Uh, Damn uh, it. I could have been great on SNL. Uh, you know, I'll share with your audience that in terms of um, comedians or comedy artists, just because of what I mean something to me, that doesn't mean that if I'm not seeing something proper, like for instance, I always loved Patton Oswald, but you know, if Patton were sitting with me right now, I'd say, listen, but Patton, I just, I love you and I love how you are. Your mind is, I think, too smart for me. It's too, it's too, there's too many connections and things that are going, but I, I, I'm riveted to you, but I just don't, I, I can't, like, I can't grasp it. And if I can't, if I'm not invested in it, I can't invest in it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I, I would go, I would, I always loved him, but was never somebody, if he was, let's say an artist who was available when he was younger and, and, he, and I were to go to him or he were to come to me, I don't think it would, would, would work. I've also not been a, a been good with like, you know, I, the angrier kind of artist. The, the the fabricated anger or the just like anger, but I, I respect like Lewis Black is an incredible artist mm-hmm. and amazing. Uh, but for some reason, the way I'm wired comedically, I don't, I'm not invested in angry comedy mm-hmm. uh, as much as other people are. But I, again, I love Lewis Black. I just, I'm just saying in terms of what I, so I've always looked for people who I thought had something that not only was as unique and interesting and original as Patton Oswalt or Lewis Black, but was more accessible to the masses and more huggable and lovable to the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so even though I, like I represented, somebody might say, well, you represented Jay Moore. But Jay Moore was a, as he would say, his persona for most of his career was a lovable asshole. Yeah. And and so it was like a huggable, lovable, snarky kind of asshole. But what I looked at him was I saw somebody who could host, who could do radio, who could write books, mm-hmm. who could act dramatically, act comedically, you know, do a whole bunch of different things that, that, you know, do voiceovers, do all kinds of things. And was like a, every cylinder in their engine could be used. Mm-hmm. Even if they didn't believe it in the beginning, that those are the artists that I, I think I, I always rallied around more in the beginning. So when I started working with Chappelle, I didn't just see him as a great stand up comedian. I saw him as somebody who could be a guy who could create his own television show, write his own movie, uh, star in dramatic things. And, you know, when I see him in a star is born, yeah, he's got a small role, but it's beautiful. No comedy, Mm -hmm. just a beautiful, beautiful supporting role. Wonderful. And I love, I look at somebody like, uh, Gabriel Iglesias and his acting, you know, people don't think he's a great, they don't look at him as an actor. He's a great actor, mm. fucking great actor. And, uh, uh, Ray Romano. Yeah. Unbelievable has become one. He's become probably, it could be argued out of all the stand up comics working today. It could be argued 
that he is the best actor of all of them right now. And this is somebody who went onto a soundstage with Everybody Loves Raymond, never even having any experience at all. Mm -hmm. So I always look at what the people that, that could use almost all the cylinders in their engine, Mm -hmm. they can create, they can star in, they can um, do guest appearances, you know, I, I, I love that. Now there's certain artists that I've represented that don't do all those things anymore. And I, I sometimes do get, I don't get down about it, but I get kind of like, wow, this person's so talented, but they just seem to want to just take jobs that other people write now. Yeah. They want to just book the jobs that other people write for them. Right. And so, but that's what I always look for. I look for charisma I look for a, a comedian that, that has a strong engine. And when I say a motor, like they get up in the morning, they're thinking about comedy. They go to bed at night, they're thinking about comedy. Mm-hmm. Comedians that always want to perform and always want to create and, and create different kinds of things and that are original. Now, I want to go one step further because sometimes there's certain people that you work with and you realize maybe the chances of them doing certain things are not what they other people are. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, like I represented Gary Goldman for probably eight years, seven or eight years. And, you know, you watch Gary Goldman and it's like watching jazz. Yeah. You know, uh, but the difference between Gary Goldman and jazz is jazz musicians are very comfortable in their own skin. Jazz musicians are, they, 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 they're flowing, they move, they, whatever. And the way Gary's persona is and the way his winning formula is, is almost like an uncomfortability in his own skin, whether he would admit to that or not. He's closer to like Conan O'Brien's comfortability than he is, you know, Chappelle's comfortability or Jim Jeffries or Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. Or, but when you watch uh, a piece of comedy like the abbreviation of the states on yeah. Conan, yeah, a part of you, you know. And as anybody watching, you're like, oh, my God, this is insane. Like, this this guy just made a routine about the abbreviation of the states. There's no one in the history of the world that did this. Why? Who knows why? <laughs> and then he takes the side. It's almost like a, a set that's going off the rails and coming back on. It's like he's talking about an omelet station. And who would like the omelet station and the contractor versus the contractor and and the 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 the, the secretary and but and again when you watch the set it could be argued is this the greatest set in the history of television no is this the best response that anybody's ever gotten on te- no but when you can do material that original. It doesn't matter if you're comfortable in your own skin or not. Right. It doesn't matter if you're. It doesn't matter if you're a guy who moves around and acts out the bits. It doesn't matter if you do the voices or not. When you do material like that, you're always going to win. There's nobody. Yes, somebody can get a standing ovation, fucking a stool, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Or like, hey, you know, the uh, Gilligan's Island was a great show. You know, I don't understand why they couldn't fix a hole in a boat this big, but they could make a, bl- a blender out of two bamboo poles. Yeah. You know, what part <laughs> of the chicken does the McNugget come from? No, you know, yeah, you can get a standing ovation with a Jack Nicholson impression. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing that kind of material, so I always also looked at the material. You know, I always looked at like, you know, Chappelle, I remember Chappelle, one of his first jokes that really blew me away. I loved, he'd just come to New York City and he spent the day in New York, in Washington Square Park and he came and did a set 
at the club. I'll never forget this. And he says, I was just in Washington Square Park today, and I found out the history that back in the old days, they used to hang white people and black people on different trees. Can you imagine the protests back then? We want to be hung on the same trees as y'all. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, holy shit, this guy's 18 years old. This is like insane. And so it's like, so when you're looking at those things, or with Jim Brewer, it wasn't so much with the... Um, the ability to plant his feet. It was the character of who he was, mm. this crazy guy. But then when I first saw him do the routine about how when you drink tequila and beer and, and he did an impression of your stomach, <laughs> like how your stomach is keeping the bouncer, the bouncer of your body. Yeah. You keep, when different liquors come in and, and he acted out every like, drink and I was just like wow this this is incredible mm -hmm. and then I'll say one other thing about artists what you look for you know the one thing I'll say to everybody listening whether you want to hear it or not is that the comedy business doesn't give a fuck about you doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about how you feel about, oh, I bombed yesterday and they were watching and what do I do? Or, oh, this person who's headlining, they hate me. They told everybody I was a bad comic or this comedy booker won't book me or I auditioned for this and my friend got it. I brought my friend to the audition just for support and they booked the role. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe they got Saturday Night Live. I'm better than that person. Nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares about how you're feeling. So also the other thing I look for is the person who understands that the business doesn't give a shit about your feelings. Mm -hmm. So just go through, you know, it's fascinating. You know, I mentioned the shark before. There's only one thing noticeable that a shark cannot do. The most powerful creature in the ocean. And there's one thing it just cannot do. And that's swim backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and so I find that fascinating because I think for artists listening, you have to really, you just have to keep pile driving forward with the best that you can. And a lot of comedians will say, well, you know, I did really good at uh, the Funny Bone the other night. Yeah, really good doesn't cut it. Oh, I, I had a great set. Well, really great set doesn't cut it. What cuts it is that you have the best set of the night 10 times in a row at your home club mm -hmm. to where the bartenders, the waitresses, the people there, the owner of the club the bar back, the guy taking the garbage out, everybody in the audience who might have been walking in and out, the comedians that hate you, every single person says that you had the best set of the night. You do that 10 times in a row, as I like to say, get a helmet because <laughs> you are going someplace in the right direction. Uh -huh. But if you're not doing that, then... You got more work to do. Mm -hmm. And for me, I want to be, I want to work with people who, who work hard, who self-generate, who use every cylinder, who have charisma, who can bang themselves over the head and give themselves an amnesia every day. So every day starts at zero, zero, and they just move forward. And that's what's going to take artists where they want to go. Mm -hmm. And you see, comedians um coming up and 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 becoming more famous every year you see new people coming up and you're like i can't believe she has a special i started with her yeah yeah well you didn't finish with her so you got more work to do yeah yeah 
And I think you, you uh, phrase that beautifully about giving yourself amnesia every morning because I, I've talked to, you know, well over a hundred comedians during the course of this show. And the one thing that is common among everybody is comedy starts out as just a series of shit sandwiches. You get shit sandwich after shit sandwich every day. People are passing you up uh, that shouldn't be passing you up, but you have to understand that you got to eat those shit sandwiches and you have to find out the way to make you special versus worrying about why somebody else is special. Yeah. Like look at, look Put your jokes and your premises on paper. Really look at them. And really look at them. Like, look, just, you can write down any premise with the jokes that you have under that premise on it. And just hand them to a stranger and say, hey, listen, could you read this? Let me, let me know what you think. Mm-hmm. And if they're reading it and they're like, then you got more work to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, I remember one of the first people who came on, uh, you know, who sent me a video. Uh, well, not the first, but one that I really remembered. And I remember a joke that they did. And I, I honestly didn't remember it the way they told it. And in my mind, if they were here right now, I'd say that they told the joke differently and not as necessarily effectively as I remembered it, the way I would tell it to people, how I loved it. Uh But, you know, it was like a woman who was talking about how she was in her 40s. And the way I perceived the joke was this. Now, I'm going to share the premise to the to the joke with you and your audience because uh, she's already documented the joke. Or whatever. Right. And think in your mind what joke you would write for this. You know, uh, so we already know she's in her 40s, and, the, and the, the premise is you know you're getting old as a woman when. So think about what you would write for that joke. And this is what I think most comedians would be so beneficial to do. If they just take the joke, the premise they have, whatever premise they have, whatever it is, and think about if they gave that premise to 100 comedians and said, could you come up with one joke for that? Or could you come up with three for that? There would be a lot of jokes. And chances are, maybe your joke wouldn't be the best. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe one of theirs would be. So you can constantly reevaluate and relook and go back to your jokes. Now, when I stop, the, if I stop the video of like that premise, you know, you're getting old as a woman when. Maybe my joke would be, uh, you know, you're getting old as a woman when your spanks have an expiration date. <laughs> you know, maybe that would be my joke uh-huh. or whatever. I'd probably get canceled. But this woman's joke, just there's there's no way it cannot work. I just don't even understand how it's possible. Um, uh, you know, you're getting old as a woman when you have to buy your own cocaine. <laughs> so, like, and again, I know it's a drug reference and it's not, you know, that's probably a, maybe people would say that's an easier laugh. But she takes you on the ride, you're going, and then she, you just fall off the cliff. And then it's not only a consonant at the end, but it's a double consonant, cocaine. Uh-huh. And so when you're putting your material together, you want to have stuff that you know is automatic. Now, just if you're a storyteller, it's different. Let's, let's use the analogy of boxing. If you're a storyteller, yeah, it's jab, 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 right, jab, 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 combination, mm-hmm. jab, 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 uppercut, 
you know, you're telling a story. You can't, you're, you, no story is going to work when it's like uppercut, 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 uppercut. Right. But, you know, but if you're a joke teller telling jokes around the premise, let's look at just the old days, you know, Rodney Dangerfield could tell a story and a joke in four or five seconds, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was ugly as a kid. My dad used to tie a pork chop around my neck to get the dog to play with me. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Oh, my wife is a bad cook. I mean, I don't think meatloaf should glow in the dark. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> you know, oh, my parents hated me. My bath toys were a radio and a fan. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's different yeah. than a story. But... Most comedians are the ones that put a premise together and have jokes. I always say one of the greatest routines ever that I probably, again, can't talk about is an eight-minute piece of Chris Rock. It's about 25 years ago, Bring on the Pain, the one where he has one premise. You know, I'm a black man. I love black people, but I hate. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great act, yeah. And... When you watch that eight minutes, it is insane. It is like it is like a one-sided boxing match for eight minutes. He's just pounding every single joke. You know, they like to keep it real, mm-hmm. real dumb. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you, you're worried about your money and your house. Put it in books. Don't read. Boom. It's like kryptonite. Boom. And he acts it out. Or yeah. it's just like, um, you know, uh, I know a lot of black people out in the audience are looking at me, Chris Rock, and saying, hey, that's not true. It's the media. It's the media. You know, when I go to the cash machine after the show, I'm not going to be looking over my shoulder for the media. <laughs> I'm going to be looking over my shoulder for, boom. And then the tags. Ted Koppel never did anything to me. Yeah. Boom. I'm looking over my shoulder. Mike Wallace is not there. Boom. It's just like, if you watch that, it's just the one premise. Black people and something else. Uh That's the whole premise. And there's so many things. Can't open a can't open a nightclub. Grand opening, grand closing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can't go to a movie. People are shooting at the screen. You know, it's just one thing after another. It's like unbelievable. It's like it's sanity. And and these are the examples that I would show anybody. And I love showing people because. I could watch these routines over and over again because you want to. Another thing I could talk ad nauseum about is look at Jim Jeffries' gun control bit. This is like a 10-minute routine where he's going on stage. Probably half of the people in the crowd are against guns. Half the people are for guns. But yet somehow, some way, this guy, through this, this stream of consciousness, there's one premise He's like crushing and everybody's galvanized at the end. Yeah. You know, everybody listening to this show, everybody listening, everybody knows what great comedy is. You have an advantage that I never had. If I wanted to look at a great comic, I'd have to wait around every night to see who was on the Tonight Show. And who knew who knew if they were great or not? I remember seeing Louis Anderson for the first time. Walks right out, crowds applauding. First line: "Hey, I don't have much time. I'm in between meals." Yeah. Boom. <laughs> just just crushed them. You know, it's like who he was as a person, his point of view, and. Every joke, 
even jokes that you, you probably couldn't do today. Like I did the, what was it? The, the fat person Olympics broad jump killed her. Yeah. You know, <laughs> three seconds, three seconds, boom, just crushed them. And, you know, um, and it was about family and him and what, you know, Roseanne back then around the same time, you know, she took something that was a topic that was common, which is a housewife. And she called herself a domestic goddess. Mm -hmm. And then she broke it down of how things were in a way that no one else could break it down that way. Everybody listening, you know, what's great. You know, when you want, look, uh, if he were sitting here, he'd probably uh, kill me, but I've talked to him about it before. Dave Chappelle was gracious, and I represented him for probably eight or a little over eight years, and uh, he was gracious enough to invite me to one of his shows uh, leading up to one of his specials. And he goes on stage, and he it's like the day after Charlottesville or whatever it was. And he does like a half hour on Charlottesville, like, you know, just off the top of his head, he's killing. It's like the crowd is like davening, like rabbis, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, in a prayer book. I mean, it's like killing, like insanity. Just, there's no way he could have written it. It was the night before mm -hmm. killing. And then you can tell he sort of finished the rant and he gets to the stool and he does a line that he did on one of his specials. He says something to the effect, I'm 44 years old. Uh, I'm getting old. You know, you're getting old when you're, you know, close the door as you get under the covers, you start jerking off and halfway through you just say, fuck it, I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> did that joke and then he proceeded to do a half hour of like, whatever it was, sticks and stones or one of the specials that he was working on, uh -huh. which was insane. Go backstage. There's like 200 people waiting back there. I'm thinking to myself, I should just go. I'm, I'm never going to see him, whatever comes out. And I, again, I'm, it's so humbling sometimes, you know, cause you have your kid there and you, you, and he just walks out, and there's all these people waiting to see him. He just comes, and he comes right over to us, and he spends time with my boy. And I ask him right then and there. I say, listen, you know, Dave, I mean, you're, you're Dave Chappelle. You know, I, I, I love this, what you did. Insane. So amazing. I just got to ask you about one joke. Why in the bridge between the Charlottesville and the other stuff that you sit at the stool and, and not sit at the stool, put your stuff on the stool, smoke a cigarette and just say the joke about masturbation. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Barry, man, sometimes I like to do things for me, you know? And, and it made sense to me because like he knew that that's not the kind of joke that is up to like the crack baby yeah. or the, or, you know, the Jesse Schmule, as he would say, uh -huh. bit or the, you know, some of the incredible pieces that he's had on these specials. But one thing you understand when you become an extraordinary artist is that, look, let's say you have a hundred, let's call them jokes you know, there's going to be one that's number one and there, there's going to be one that's the hundredth best. There's going to be one that's the 72nd best, the 36th. They can't all be tied for first. Mm -hmm. But greatest artists in the world, they're writing their material with the vision that everything is tied for first. And that's the mindset of what they want to do. And that's what makes them great. They're not writing a routine saying this would be the B side to my 45 single. Mm -hmm. Like they're writing routines. So they, everybody believes that are at the top of their game. And that's the most important thing for you artists working on things 
you start with your first five that's invincible. No one can stop you with that five. There's mm-hmm. not one joke that's not equal to the other, not one premise, however you work it. And then you start working on the next five. And you can do it many different ways. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Some artists, I'm sure you go to the shows and you'll see them do five and then you go to another show and the person does another five and you're like, what the? Holy crap. They just did another five. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people who do their, you know, three and a half minutes of their five and they insert the one and a half new minutes in to kind of get a feel for what it is. Mm-hmm. There's no right or wrong answer. Obviously the person who takes the risk and goes with a new five is the person that everyone in the room respects more. Mm-hmm. But that mean that everyone in the world knows how the process worked for everybody. You don't know the process of Jim Jeffries. Mm-hmm. You don't know the process of Chris Rock. You don't know you don't know Seinfeld's process of how they work it. And and nobody does when the special comes out. So mm-hmm. whatever works for you and is going to get you to the promised land quicker, that's the thing you should do that works within you. Mm-hmm. I still say risk is always an exciting thing. But comics worry, well, what if the booker's there and he sees me bomb and I do a new five? Well, you know what's great. You know what jokes you write that are great. You don't, why do anything that's just okay? You can look at it on the paper. You can see you're a smart person. Mm -hmm. You can see what's funny and what's not. I mean, it's pretty clear, I think. I mean, if you wrote down every great comedian's best bit, you know, if you wrote down the George Carlin bit where he talked about these people who were trying to save the environment, and when he says the world is going to flick you people off like a dog flicks off fleas, mm-hmm. well, I think that looks good on paper. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that the seven words that, you know, you can't say on television looks good on paper. I think the routine about football and war, I think it looks good on paper. Mm-hmm. And if it looks good on paper, if you're any semblance of a performer, it's going to look good on stage. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is that don't give up on something that's great because you're not a great performer yet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you have to tell your stories or your jokes like you would remember telling the greatest story that you have to your friends at a birthday party. Mm-hmm. Everyone listening knows their best story that they tell when they're around strangers at a group. Mm-hmm. And it always kills and they always tell it the right way and they always have the right timing and there's always that closing line and boom. Boom. And so just get up on stage and be the person you are with your friends. Don't be like, you know, I was watching somebody the other day who great new material, amazing new material. And I know this person and they're so wonderful. And so, but on stage, it was just like, it was just Mm -hmm. like this great material, but just, you know, not telling it like, not telling it like they would to their friends or anything like that. So those are the things I would say about that. But Mm -hmm. the great part is, again, you all know, I couldn't say this, I could say this 20 times, you all know you're smart, you know what's funny, Mm -hmm. and you know what isn't funny. But Barry, somebody went on the other night who has a Netflix special, and they did a joke about how shit floats in the toilet. Okay, that's so, so, so they did that. Let them do that. It's a long race. I can guarantee you if they keep doing jokes like that, they're not going to get another Netflix special, and you're going to get that slot. Mm-hmm. There's no timetable. There's no rhyme or reason why some people make it earlier than others. Look, I've probably done 40-hour specials. I'm not going to say which ones, but there's some I've I've done that I'm like, I can't believe the material that that was doing. Like, I I just don't even believe it. Mm 
It's like, what were they thinking? Uh-huh. I have people that I did their hour special, and after they saw their hour special, they quit the business. <laughs> and not because of the production of the special, yeah. but because of the material. 